Good afternoon. My name is Usama Badad. I'm lead geneticist at Trilogy and Seed, co-founder and chief science officer at Gromix Inc. about cannabis is dedicated to providing reliable cannabis science education to anyone curious enough to learn to get access to free courses and other educational resources visit learn.cacpodcast.com and become a curious about cannabis member for free the curious about cannabis book provides an incredible crash course in cannabis science through over 500 pages of content filled with photos, activities, science experiments, games, and more to help guide you through your personalized cannabis education journey. This book has become a trusted textbook in colleges and universities across North America and is absolutely perfect for serious learners as well as cannabis educators, bud tenders, clinicians, patients, and caregivers. And special thanks to the many individuals, companies, and organizations that have helped Curious About Cannabis meet our mission of becoming the number one trusted source of cannabis science education on the planet. This includes organizations like Credo Science with Ethan Russo, The Conigma, Treadwell Farms, The Spellman Report with Kevin Spellman, The Workshop, Green Earth Medicinals, CBD National, Magnolia Botanicals, and more. Visit cacpodcast.com slash sponsors to learn about our sponsors and go show them some love for helping us spread cannabis science education far and wide to anyone curious enough to learn. If you like Curious About Cannabis, consider checking out some of these other learning initiatives by Natural Learning Enterprises. Come on, Molly! It'll be an adventure! Phoebe called out as she followed Brother Toadstool. Brother Toadstool led Phoebe and Molly into a tunnel that went deep down into the ground. As they climbed into the tunnel, they found themselves getting smaller and smaller and smaller. Our new children's book, A Toadstool's Treasures, takes young readers on an adventure into the fun and fascinating world of fungi. Learn more and find mycology-related learning resources, games, and lesson plans for teachers and homeschooling families at toadstoolstreasures.com. And now, back to the show. Hey everybody, this is Jason with Curious About Cannabis. Thanks so much for tuning in once again. Today I am joined by Usama Badad, who is the lead geneticist at Trilogene Seeds. We're here to talk all about cannabis genetics, and I'm really excited to get into it. Thanks so much for being willing to spend your time today to come on the podcast and talk about DNA and anything else that we get into today. I'm really excited. Thank you for the time and the opportunity. Uh, I appreciate it. Absolutely. And to, to start us out, tell us a little bit about the company and your personal work you know we've talked off camera quite a bit about some of the projects that you've been working on some of the different types of genetics that you've been working on developing so give us just a little bit of background into trilogy and seeds and just what you're all about sure so trilogy and seeds is a genetic company that started uh, in the market in 2016 
uh, and it had been successfully put in cultivars uh, since then. We put in the market about 60 cultivars uh, that have been nice. commercialized wow. in around 35 or 36 countries. Uh, we have presence in South America, uh, in Asia, in Europe, and we are present in every uh, state in the U.S. Uh, so in the beginning, we started doing conventional breeding, uh, just like everybody does, uh, large funeral hunt selection based on certain criteria, yeah. and then crossing and developing lines. Uh, and lately, uh, the, the urge, if you want to go to market with certain genotypes became very important. Uh, things that uh, most of the genetics are suffering from, uh, sometimes it's uh, a disease, for example. Uh, certain cultivars growing in yeah. certain areas require certain tolerances or resistance to disease. For example, if you're growing in the south, you're growing a crop uh, outdoor, summertime gets pretty hot and humid and the, all the problems with right. powdery mildew will, will come up. So this is something that uh, in, in the normal varieties and cultivars and the way we've been breeding cannabis, we actually kill the genetic diversity. So all those early frequencies coding for those resistance and tolerances to biotic and abiotic stress, we lost them during uh, the, the selection for high CBD or high THC lines, but we forgot about the other traits. I'd love to talk about that a little bit more because I, I think that concept is really, really important before we move on, this concept of um, genetic diversity in the cannabis um, population and, and what's happened to it um, through commercial breeding and everything. You know, a lot of people <clears throat> have pushed back when I've made similar statements like that, that we've really um, kind of bottlenecked the genes in a way, um, just going after THC and aroma, that we've lost a lot of things. And I've gotten pushback from people that say, well, also because of all of the experimentation that's going on with cannabis, it's actually as genetically diverse as ever. But I think that um, sometimes folks kind of miss understand the point I'm trying to get across when I when I talk about that that bottlenecking and in, in some of these traits so do you mind um, kind of unpacking that um, how how do these traits get lost um, through breeding and um, you know what are people may maybe losing sight of when they think that there's a lot of diversity when they look around at commercial cannabis well let, let's let's take uh, uh, let's take the time and when what happened during, let's say, the past 10,000 years of domestication of cannabis. Cannabis yeah. is one of the oldest domesticated uh, species yeah. that seems to, that this is based on the study that, uh, that was done lately with sequencing. Came from the Tibetan plateau, crawled west, came to yeah. the fork in Turkey and went north on the fork to Europe, and then he came to the Americas. This is based on the sampling they did. The problem with that study, it discarded the entire country from the sampling, no samples from Africa. So for you to say that it came from the extreme east to Turkey and went up at the mm -hmm. fork instead of going to North Africa, if we, uh, if we just follow the knowledge and every domestication that happened, it came to North Africa before Europe because nobody was drinking tea and wearing silk in Europe back then. 
I like oh, people wow. in North yeah, Africa. That's a really like good... empires, like the pharaohs and stuff like that. So every other knowledge came to North Africa and then went to Europe when the Moros from Morocco invaded Andalusia around 1400 years ago. But this is a different story. Uh, what happened is we've been selecting for certain things. When when humans discovered that they can get high off of THC and that's a medicinal thing that we can use, everybody was selecting just for that high THC. Those high THC varieties have been associated with certain plant structures. They were very airy. They they had just little nugs. And 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 those those powdery mildew problems were not a problem back then because you didn't have a bigger biomass. You just had little sticks with flour. Yeah, a lot of airflow. Exactly. Yeah. The problem with with uh, selecting for yield and, and THC and yield and THC, you went from that finicky plant to a very dense inflorescence. The problem with dense inflorescence in commercial level is the airflow. So. What and 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 this this is the kind of selection behavior that led to the bottleneck. How all of the other traits were not selected for, so they got discarded in the genotypes that didn't make the cut. You may have something resistant, but it didn't show a really nice about structure, so we got discarded. This is how we lost those traits, and those traits are encoded by genes. Those genes, if you don't select for them, if they're discarded from the population, then you lose them. They don't exist in any of the genotypes that you have in the population. Another problem that occurred is when we started crossing in the beginning, we were creating a real F1 hybrids. The problem was we used yeah, those yeah. F1 hybrids and we started breeding with them, not knowing that there is a segregation of gene in the F1. You take a hybrid, if you grow it again, that's a segregation population. You will have 25% on this side, 25% on this side. Those are the parents that gave the cross and then 50% of that hybrid vigor that is still left. And just find the, find the good cut, cross it, keep crossing, keep crossing hybrids and hybrids and hybrids that we thought they were real hybrids, but they were not. And what happened is we ended up creating this genetic pool of half brothers and sisters and we just keep crossing them and now we're facing all of these new problems of consanguinity it's just like in humans if you yeah. keep crossing something that it's very similar maybe uh, the look is different but that's a whole different thing the phenotypic plasticity of the right. plant could give you so many phenotypes from the same genotype because they're not only coded by genes, but there's other factors controlling as transcription factors, DNA methylation, and all the, the epigenetic markers that regulates gene expression. And, and we just went for the purple flower, for this, for this. And now if you look at the commercial lines, they're all descent of a gelato or of, uh, of a cookie. or yeah. uh, and, and it's just different phenos from the same genotype but people thinking they are different and they keep crossing them. Basically, what you're doing is just an inbred line of, of one generation. Yes. Yeah. So that, that was the problem that led to this bottleneck of genetic diversity. And this is where Trilogene comes with a little bit of technology that if the allele frequency does not exist in nature, we can cross all year long. We're not going to be able to create it. How about we can right. use that variation using so many different techniques? Well, yeah, you just pointed out two really <clears throat> important things I wanted to highlight. One is that um, I really want to 
highlight the fact that you said that the the phenotypical diversity that you see um, can come from you know a limited amount of genotypes. So you could see more phenotypical diversity than is actually represented by genotypical diversity because of all of those other variables that are um, that are at play. I think a lot of people don't realize that, um, and so I think that's. Um, really important to to point out because what that means is that all of the phenotypical diversity that you see um, is actually relatively narrow compared to what you would possibly see if more gene, uh, you know, more diverse genetic information were represented. Um, Absolutely. In those plants, and and so um, in a, kind of another point to this too we, we've seen this problem crop up with agricultural crops repeatedly that um, as they get heavily domesticated they get um, bred for certain traits that humans like that you know for food or whatever um, we essentially homogenize the gene pool down um, to the point that um, it makes the plants vulnerable if certain diseases come through um, that they have no ability to protect themselves from viruses, whatever. Um, and then all of the plants go down because none of them have any defenses for that because they've been bred out, lost, whatever. Um, and so I think people take for granted that this could happen to cannabis. Um, but it's completely the case. We don't know what we've lost by, um, you know, just the, like you said, thousands and thousands and thousands of years of domestication and focusing on these limited number of traits. Um, so really important points. And then moving into these, these technologies, um, yeah, let's talk about how do we get these lost traits back? How do we get these alleles back into the genetics of these plants? Because there are multiple ways. There is absolutely multiple ways. The easy, closest way to do it is to do ge real genetic assessment of land races that exist around the world. And those need to be in a seed bank available through the, the Nagoya protocol of share of biodiversity. And um, I, I don't know if I'm getting, if I'm looking for a, a strain that is specific with the cannabinoid, I know that certain, I'll take an example, THCV, some of the Durban lines, they are really high in THCV. Collaboration with with the center in, I don't know, in Uganda or maybe in Malawi or Tanzania uh, to send that seed that could be screened, that could be involved in a breeding project, and then some of those royalties go back to those people because we need to use cannabis as a way to give back to those yeah, communities. Yeah. We can't forget about them. Uh, Beside land races and reintroduce them into intracranial lines and stuff like that, there is induced variation, and this is uh, it. Bring us to the two big theories that exist today: is certain traits are governed by copy number variation. So, how many copies of that gene you have, for example, you will have a higher content of certain secondary metabolites, or it does not matter what <clears throat> number you have of the variants. What, it ma what matters is the variant itself, it's a specific sequence. So to tackle both of these theories, we have variation breeding that use induced mutagenesis to create new variations. In, in this case, we're creating new alleles, new frequencies, and we are contributing to 
to enrich that that first genetic pool that we started with. Uh, the, on the other side, there's ploid manipulation. If if copy number variation, for example, is controlling trichome density, having four copies will give you a denser inflorescence than two copies. So manipulating the chromosome number uh, is a way to duplicate the, the, the copies of certain centases, for example. But this is just in theory. Yeah. The, what could happen is... Well, I think it's know, good just in case anyone's... In case anyone's unfamiliar, real quick, um, do you mind uh, just providing a really basic definition of um, like polyploidy, that sort of thing? I'm just worried that um, some folks might not know what that is. So uh, a polyploid or a tetraploid. So a polyploid is a plant where you may have different levels of ploidy. Cannabis normally is a diploid plant with 20 chromosomes. A polyploid plant might have a tetraploid here. It depends on how you created it. It may have different kind of ploidy levels. A tetraploid will be a true 40 chromosome, uh, a pure duplication of the initial 20. And, and that's what you want because that will allow you to commercialize that line as a tetraploid, uh, which is basically you take a, 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 an in, a four-cylinder engine, you take the engine out, you put an eight-cylinder engine, and then you hope that the body does not fall apart. In in, in certain cases, when, yeah. when you duplicate all the genomes, even the size of the leaves grows. Everything is, uh, it, I mean, uh, it it just makes the plant bigger. It, it makes bigger plants, and scientifically, we hope that the translation of the biomass. Uh, will be also in the cannabinoid content, in the terpenoid content, in the trichome density, in the inflorescence. So we have uh, those genotypes in flowering right now, and we're excited to uh, do the phenotyping so we can actually appreciate what we did with those. Those are the, the polyploid, nice. tetraploid, diploid. Also, the mutant that we create, why we call them mutants? Because they're issue of mutagenesis, where basically we induce... Uh, variation how DNA is a bunch of A, T, Gs, and Cs on a certain uh, order. And what we do is just we, twi we switch right. a T for a G or we switch a C for an A, and we hope that we create a new protein that will give a different outcome. So these are the two, uh, uh, I, I would say, mid-range technology that we use to, to do genetic improvement. The other part uh, of uh, of this genetic development is when we establish a baseline and there is everything that we need in there except one single trait, uh, that variety will go into a gene editing program that we know the gene, it's mapped, we know the address, we'll design a guided RNA for it to target that, that gene. And I don't know if you want me to develop this or, because uh, this is a pretty cool part of cannabis breeding. It is, yeah, and it's it's fascinating. It's 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 really fascinating, and I I want to make sure we kind of go through it um, slow and unpacking things, just so pe everyone can um, can really follow everything. So now we're we're talking about um, not just breeding in you know land races and trying to get um, traits back into these commercial varieties that way, but actually trying to um, manipulate DNA directly in different ways. And so if you did know um, exactly what 
alleles you're trying to manipulate and everything, um, and you're moving into the direction of, of gene editing, um, how does that technology work? You know, are we talking about CRISPR and, and getting into that sort of thing, which I think probably a lot of people are, are at least familiar with that phrase, CRISPR, um, or are we talking about something else? So uh, for, for gene editing, uh, we have to, we, we are going two directions. Uh, if, if we, usually you don't only breed to put things in, you want to brood to take things out. Yeah. Bringing things in are easier than bringing things out because when you bring that one thing out, conventionally, you are bringing out a lot of things, especially if you have uh, a trait that is controlled by a QTL where the genes are very close to each other's and there is no way you can break that, uh, what, what would be a, a, what I call this, a disequilibrium, linkage disequilibrium. It's, it's a bunch of genes that are so close to each other that they get inherited together. You cannot break them. It, you yeah, can cross, okay. it, it's, it's Sticky really complicated. Genes. Yeah. So how, how, can you, how can you take one gene out of all of those and snip it out? I'll give you an example. Uh, for powdery mildew, there is a recognition between the plant and and the, 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 the pathogen. So if you have an MLO uh, gene, you are susceptible to powdery mildew because of that entire interaction and recognition between the pathogen and the plant. So how, how about we just snip out that gene? We, we don't want it. If it's in my line, if I take that, that gene out, my line will be perfect. I don't need to cross for this. If the gene is mapped, which means I know its position in the genome, and this and it will only work if the gene of interest is mapped and we know its function, we know where it is because we need the address. Yeah. So when you know that we know the address and everything, now comes you, how can you design something to find that gene within the genome and modify it so it's not working? This is exactly what gene editing is, which is different from GMOs. I just want to do something really quick so people understand. The GMO is when I was take, I was I was going to lead to that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's when you take a foreign piece of DNA, you put it in a vector, you transform a bacteria, and that bacteria going to transform the plant, injecting that entire cassette of foreign DNA plus other gene into your line. Gene editing using CRISPR or RNA interfering is simpler than that. What you're doing basically is you're editing something that already exists. I'm just going to change a couple of bases so I stop it from working. This is this yeah. is the difference. And uh, the USDA well, been working with uh, with gene edited plants to allow them to be in the market. And uh, a purple tomato was successfully put into market, and we are the second company with a uh, hemp yeah. variety on, uh, in this process. So just to explain to you how we got to, to that line. Uh, so THC is something really important for hemp growers. Someone who is growing 5,000 acres of hemp, the yeah. last thing they want is their crop to go hot. USDA comes in, you need to remediate this or you have to destroy it. So what if we can take the THCA synthase in the hemp lines and we just snip it out? Uh, so that's what we did using RNA interfering. 
So just the way it's called, it's, it's based on interference. So basically what we did is we went to the gene THCA synthase that codes for THCA, and we went to the promoter. The promoter is the part of the genome that is always upstream a gene, and it's always involved in the regulation right. of that gene. And we went to the cis elements that starts the transcription of that gene, and we blocked it. Well, basically what we did, we went to the lock, and we changed... We didn't even change the lock. We put a key in there, and we broke the key. Like jammed it. Yeah, yeah. So what happened is when that gene wanted to work, it requires a transcription factor that needs to map into that cis element to start the transcription. So if you're coming with a key and you're, you're trying to open, but there's already a key that we designed that looks exactly like the original one, but it's a little different, just a little different for that transcription factor to not recognize it. And that way that gene is not getting expressed. You don't have THC. Look at the value of this. Not only the farmers will have a peace of mind growing the variety, but insurance companies don't have the liability anymore of the crop going hot and they can offer crop insurance, which is non-existent in the cannabis industry today. So this is how technology can solve problems. And um, I think uh, one thing that I that is worth um, highlighting here of like how you you kind of get from idea all the way to the sort of you know finished project. Um, you mentioned that you can't just kind of go basically willy nilly editing genes like this is very specific to things that have been well studied well mapped um that you have a clear sense of their function um and all of that so i just wanted to highlight that because i think sometimes people have the idea that you can kind of just go in and and uh, you know tweak around with anything that you want um and uh, so i just wanted to highlight that that you really have to know what you're going after, what that thing does. And it takes a lot of research and studying before you ever get into the gene editing. Um, Absolutely. You know, uh, to, to understand what the, what the possible repercussions of editing that gene might be. Um, and then of course you, you edit it and then find out and grow it out and, and measure it. So <clears throat> I, I know some questions folks are going to be having as they're listening to this is one, um, with these plants where the THCA synthase has been knocked out, um, have you grown those plants out and verified um, the lack of THC? I know people are going to immediately ask that. So those plants are still in tissue culture. So what we did, you can verify. Gotcha. Okay. You, you can verify if that plant first, uh, just to explain to people how gene editing happened. Gene editing happens in two very important phases. Genetic transformation, plant regeneration in tissue culture. So we take very small explants, sometimes embryos, and we transform those. We develop a callus. That callus is nothing but a cancer. It's a bunch of, of undifferentiated cells, but we can take a piece from that and we can sequence just to know if the transformation happened or not. So now we know that our transformation happened. We are in the process of regenerating gotcha. plants off of tissue culture to be phenotypes. And we don't even have to flower them all the way. We know that THCA synthase start working at week two. So at week two of flowering, yes, we yeah. can do an RNA uh, expression. We can see the gene expression. 
just in a qPCR or RNA sequencing to know if there is a transcription of the gene. If there is no transcription of the gene, which means that our transformation worked, and that flower, when it grows, it's going to look like a beautiful flower. It just doesn't have any THC in it because we killed the transcription. We made something that is uh, that it's not going to produce that. And we we tackle that from a different perspective. So instead of only doing RNA interfering, we did CRISPR as well. So CRISPR, instead of targeting the promoter with the interference, we targeted the gene itself because the THCA center is is different from other genes, it's got only one exon. Every gene got a succession of exon, intron, exon, intron. Introns get removed in the maturation of the RNA and then what get expressed is the exons. THC synthase, it's nothing but a long intronless gene. So anywhere you can hit, hmm, you can create a, a codon stop or a frame shift that will make that that entire RNA goes to be degraded instead of being translated. So maxim this way we maximize the possibility of getting transformed plants. And it's also a way to diversify IP. Uh, we don't only produce yeah, seeds, yeah. we produce a very strong IP. Uh, we, we have uh, in collaboration with Rapid Genomics, we developed a panel for mutagenesis to be able to do early screening. If I want to grow 20,000 plants, it's really heavy to grow it, flower it, dry it, cure it, and phenotype it. That's mm -hmm. a lot of money. But if I can genotype 20,000 plants at a seedling stage after a week from germination yeah. or two weeks, I can select based on the genotypes, the ones that carries the mutations that I want because I'm comparing them to the normal plants using using gene mapping. Uh, th these are the, the technologies that uh, personally I've been using. I, I came from the soybean and the olive industry. Uh, we worked in gene discovery. Yeah. We do a lot of mutations and then we genotype by sequencing and do genome-wide association studies, uh, different mutants with something that pops up and it's new, the algorithms, they can do the association. And that's how you map genes to get them ready for gene editing. So we do the process from A to Z. A lot of sequences, we, we generate a lot of IP in terms of DNA and processes, uh, because you, you can only be a genetic company. There is, there is so many people around yeah. you crossing and crossing and, and getting a cut from here and cut from there. We try to uh, bridge the gap, bring the science to the garden, uh, and it's 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 been successful. Uh, we found some pretty cool genotypes that we are uh, putting in. You can't just create it and throw it in the market. Me, people may get, uh, you know, but we want to make sure that it's stable, that it's not doing something it's not supposed to. Yeah. Those mutants, they're going to be released in the market in 2024. We found some pretty good uh, uh, in our early R&D on some hemp lines that tested 20, 22% CBD pre-harvest, pre-harvest. Uh, wow. So those, they will finish around 28%, 29% CBD content, wow. which is unheard of. Uh, and also high. these mutants, yes. they, <laughs> they, uh, some, some, some hemp flower is looking more and more like ganja flower just from that process of mutagenesis you are, you are you are hitting genes even involved in the plant structure or in fluorescence structure 
uh, and and those genes they take yeah. mutations easily, uh, just like the the outback bastard, the dogfoot. All of these are mutations that yep. been isolated. Uh, and what we're doing, we're just doing high throughput mutagenesis coupled with genotyping by sequencing, so we don't have to flower and process everything. And what people need to know is the genotyping is cheaper than phenotyping. Absolutely. To phenotype a flower, you you are on the hundred dollar test per, per sample. If you want to look at yeah cannabinoids and terpenoids and all of this, but if you want to genotype, it's a fraction of that price. And it's allowing you, for example, the panel that we are using with rapid genomics is 120 genes at once. I can screen for 120 traits at once. Yeah. And, and our process is simple. If this gene sequence looks like the mother plant, I don't want that genotype. If, the, if, the, if that sequence does not look like the, the initial variety that we modified, that's what I want. That one could go to phenotyping. And it's instead of growing 20,000, I'll be growing probably 100. <laughs> it's, it's really fascinating to think about how breeding and cultivation is evolving um, so quickly, not just in the cannabis space, but broadly. Um, the fact that cultivators have these tools available to them. And, I, you know, and one thing I wanted to do with this episode is to make sure people knew that these tools existed and that these technologies um, exist, um, and are presenting solutions to, um, all sorts of, of interesting problems, you know, particularly, you know, um, one issue that's happening right now, uh, that we've kind of touched on a little bit is that, you know, cannabis isn't just being grown in arid environments anymore. <laughs> you know, it's not just being grown in, on the West coast of the United States and, you know, in Afghanistan and, you know, different areas like that. And um, cannabis as an industry is spreading into all of these other environments, higher latitudes and lower latitudes and different humidity um, um, environments, all sorts of different ecoregions. And um, it, that presents challenges, unique um, pest pressures, unique microorganisms that the plants have to deal with, um, unique environmental stresses in general, um, even just related to weather. You know, um, I think about places um, close to areas that have hurricanes, for instance, or high winds. You know, these are all different things that plants use um, different genes to, uh, to adapt to. And so it's, it's really fascinating to think about and, and something for everyone listening that I really want you to think about is to make the most out of these technologies, you really have to understand what information is valuable to you and what questions you really need to be asking. And so this idea of like, well, did you know you can genotype your plants versus phenotype them and at a lower cost and even possibly get you um, a lot more interesting information than just knowing, you know, for instance, your cannabinoid ratios or something like that. Um, so I think this is really cool. Um, I wanted to touch on tissue culturing because you mentioned that, you know, we've kind of gone through this process, you know, once you get the genes edited, um, you verify that the transformation was successful. Um, I think a lot of people have some misunderstandings about tissue culturing um, my exposure to it has been in research environments. So small scale, you know, um, kind of just lab experiment side stuff, not really, 
um, high throughput, high, you know, um, large scale tissue culturing. And I know some folks have gotten excited about tissue culturing and, and have wanted to do it as an alternative to cloning and things like that, um, and have run into a number of problems. So um, do you mind speaking a little bit about, I guess, um, common misconceptions around tissue culturing and then and also along the way, just kind of explain what tissue culturing is and what that process looks like and, you know, I guess it's, it's most appropriate applications. Well, tissue culture is, to make the decision are you doing tissue culture or not, it, it's, it's a big one because why, why are you doing tissue culture? Are you using it to just do propagation? If your goal of tissue culture is just propagation, that's a, this is my perspective and it could be biased. Uh, that's not a viable, not sustainable business model. Uh, cloning will be much easier, less so much cloning variation, less, less input, less money, when what have you. But if your goal from tissue culture is banking, is cleaning genetics, yes. If you are using uh, tissue culture to do meristem cleaning and get viroid, virus, pathogen-free plants, that's perfect. That's something we do. If your goal is to bank, which means keep genetic material in a very small space for a long period of time, yes, you do tissue culture. Yeah. Uh, if you are trying to do research, you're doing trans genetic transformation, you, you need to do tissue culture. If you are doing protein manipulation on axillary buds instead of seed, you want to go to tissue culture. The misconception that tissue culture gives you vigorous and more robust plants, that is not true. Uh, but where it's coming from, it's coming from the same variety that was drained by viro viruses and viroid, and it was still good, yeah. but you run it through meristem cleaning, and then you have a virus viroid clean plant. When you compare them, absolutely, the yield on the clean one going to be bigger because the plant of is course. healthy. That's how, but, but people, they have the conception, oh, look at this, what they say, this was hunted in tissue culture. This is this is mm -hmm. the expression that I hear. Oh, this this is a hunted from tissue culture. You can't do phenol hunting in tissue culture. <laughs> what what are you what are you screening for? <laughs> like uh, genotypes are different. Some of them will take tissue culture. Some of them won't even mess with it. Some some genotypes they don't like to be touched or manipulated or any kind of chemical inputs. Mm. From very finicky plants, yeah. and there is some other plants. You put them in chemicals; they work. You cut them, clone them any way you do it. They 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 root in tissue culture. They are impeccable. It's it just it's genotype specific. But just for for wow. people thinking that tissue culture is uh, this magic stick, it's not, and it could lead to a lot of problems. I'll give you an example. A few years ago. It was a very, very big project in Indonesia about palm trees. So what they did is the tissue culture propagation of certain genotypes that were supposed to be grown on over a million acre. When they grow those plants and they started taking the kernels to, to extract the oil, mm -hmm. it was a catastrophe. When they did the epigenetic study, they figured out that the tissue culture process led to the loss of a transcription factor called good karma. So they picked the wrong meristem for generating the plants. 
Another thing that happens is DNA methylation changes. Wow. Also, another problem is somatoclonal variation. When you you put that plant with antibiotics and all controlled environment, genomes tend to move around. We call it genome rearrangement. They do rearrange based on what's going on around them, and you and you might get something like leathery leaves. And this is this is things that I've seen from wow. traveling around. Wow. You can get a plant with a chimera uh, that has had two different phenotypes in the same plant. So it's not only, uh, uh, you know, just a solution to everything. There is a lot of problem, and, and cannabis recalcitrance is, is, is a big one. Uh, another thing about tissue culture, it's not cheap. Uh, yeah, it's very, <laughs> very, very frustrating process, relies on sterile conditions, very clean, can be sloppy when you're doing tissue culture. You can't let any, uh, yeah. you can't let anything compromise your, your space of work because you have sugar and any bacteria in contact with sugar in your tissue culture is just like heaven and that's, you're going to have a problem. But if you yeah. are doing tissue culture <laughs> or... For those specific things, absolutely. If your goal is large-scale tissue culture for propagation, I think that business model is not viable and people are realizing that. And anybody who is using tissue culture to produce a plant that's going to go into a facility to flower, it's, yeah. it's not worth it. Now, testing can make sure that your plants that are moving around are pathogen-free uh, for everything like molds and viruses and viroids, you make sure that your clones are coming in, whatever it's coming out, it's clean, but you don't have to go tissue culture. It's heavy. And how much are you going to charge people yeah. for that tissue culture plant if you have an order of 50,000 cuts? Right. So it's economy of scales. Are you going to make it make the economy happening for people or not? And I think- that makes sense. Yeah. I think even clones, when the, when the market is mature enough for F1 hybrids, and this is something that we, I, I think we should talk about, is the true F1 hybrids, just like corn and soybean. We, 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 we are, yes, yeah. We, we need to get there, and if we get there, cloning also will disappear because you, you don't need to be starting from clone. You find genotype A that is inbred, genotype B that is inbred, you put those two together, they give you if if one one hundred percent similar, yep. but yet heterozygous, and that's your your hybrid vigor. And you can always go back to the same cross and generate exactly the same F one hybrids. Let's break that. Let's break that down. I think that um, a lot of folks don't understand. Um, filial generations and um, how breeding works if they haven't had to do it or, or study genetics or anything like that. So let's break down um, some of these concepts that you just brought up, because I do think they're very, very important. Um, so, you know, you've talked about um, F1 hybrids and inbred lines and that sort of thing. So let's break down some of the terms and just kind of explain um, to an audience that that really has no, no background in any of this. Um, how do these genes get mixed up and, and what's the process to get to the point where you can grow um, plants with stable reproducible um, traits, um, ideally from seed um, every time? Like, what does that path look like? 
So to be able to produce F1 hybrids, you need true inbred lines. You need very homozygous lines. Uh, homozygous means that in every loci that you have or every locus that you have, both of the alleles, they have the same copy. So what it's in this allele, what's in this chromosome is in the other. So you have two copies, similar identical allele copies. Yeah. That's homozygous. To be able to make an F1, you got to make an inbred line. How you make an inbred line? You find something that you like and you do self-in, S1, self-in again, S2, self-in again, S3, until you have a homozygous line. How can you do this? Every time you cross, you sequence. And when you sequence, you can see if your line is homozygous or heterozygous. The moment your line is homozygous in most of the low size of interest, that will be an inbred line. That's... It's not going to segregate. It will still give the same yield. It will be lower than what you created in the beginning, but it will still be good. And now what you do is you create another inbred line using the same process. Selfing, selfing, selfing until you have the second inbred line. Now, when you cross two inbred lines, two homozygous line, what you have is an F1 hybrid. The F1 hybrid going to be way better performer than the best of the two parents. That's what the, the hybrid figure is. Yeah. And that F1 hybrid, you cannot grow, you cannot grow it again, the seed from it or anything. You have to go back again to the initial cross and produce the same F1. Now the trick is what is the combination of inbred line that's gonna give me the best hybrid vigor? That's when you right. start you start trying these two, you try to start doing these two, but basically you start with something that is really different from each other's. Two plants, two inbred lines from different genetic pools. They don't look the same, they don't smell the same, they have different cannabinoid ratios. When you smash these two together, you are creating a hybrid. Now, how long it's gonna take you to find that hybrid? It could be a year, it could be five, but it depends on how yeah. large your baseline is, imagine if you have 60 inbred lines. Now it's easy to find the right combination because you have a lot. Uh, the, the more homozygous baselines you have, the, the more probabilities you have to create a very interesting and commercially viable F1 hybrid, but it takes time. And I've seen a lot of companies out there talking about triploids, uh, hybrid F1. I'm like, this, it's misleading. Unless, unless what you, and, and I, I don't want to take away from people's work. It's, it's not ethical. Yeah. If absolutely. you claim that you have something in your website, if you think that this is an F1 hybrid, show a sequence of it, show the lineage of it, show sequence of the parents. If you yeah. think that you have a tetraploid, show me flow cytometry analysis and chromosome counting. If you say, I have this, show me the DNA does not lie. Everything that you can say, yeah. the, the yeah. proof is in the DNA. So this just going to lead to a more transparent industry where everybody can thrive instead of based on uh, just tr deceiving and trying to make a buck really quick. This is very pertinent to something I, I just came across on um, on LinkedIn actually today. Uh, where someone posted about some seeds that they had available um, that were supposedly from plants that 
were very resistant to common yep. cannabis pests. And um, someone commented on the post and they said, how did you measure, um, you know, that? how did you quantify that these genotypes are resistant to, you know, the pests that you say they are? And they got very defensive, um, at, which I thought was interesting because all the person was doing was saying like, okay, you've, you've made this claim about your genetics. So how can someone verify those claims? Um, and so I think it, it's really important to remind people that there are ways to go about trying to verify some of these claims. And if someone hasn't done the work to actually verify their claims, then it's really just speculation. Um, and um, seed fraud is immense in the cannabis industry. I'm not sure what your experience has been with it. I've had several um, bizarre experiences um, through the years in Southern Oregon back in 2019, I think it was, either 2018 or 2019. There, were, um, <laughs> there was a bad batch, you know, millions and millions of uh, these F2 seeds got distributed to hemp growers. And so there were fields of mixed ratio plants growing everywhere. Um, every other plant would be a different THC CBD ratio. I mean, it was from my perspective, it was really incredible because I got to go sample them, test them in the lab and try to understand what was going on. And I was like, you know, seeing all of this diversity, um, our merge um, is kind of fun in a sense because it gives me a lot to play with, but it's terrible for the hemp farmers. I mean, it was a massive, uh, you know, lawsuit issue. Um, I mean, people lost millions and millions of dollars over that. So, I mean, these are important issues um, that that you know some people have a lot at stake. It's funny. Why why would you buy an F two? Like, at least they've been honest with you. Well, they, they lied, you, you know. <laughs> like, an F2 is bad is ba is bad news. <laughs> bad news, yeah. If you want when anything you F2 predictable. <laughs> because an F2 <laughs> means that someone bought the initial F1 seed and tried to make, to make a buck and did the selfing to produce more seed out of it. So what you have, it's three different plants with three different ratios. And even, like, different canopies. Monsters. Yeah. Uh, yep. The problem when you don't have regulation that is decent, you have this kind of behavior. Look what the FDA yeah. just did. They dropped the bomb on the CBD industry after five years of back and forth and analysis. They said, oh, sorry, it, it causes liver toxicity. Did you try aspirin? <laughs> like, yeah, right, right. And, and, and when, when, when regulation stays away from the industry just so they don't get involved, you open the window yep. to fraud. And, and the problem is what we don't pay attention is consumer exactly. safety. You don't matter in this. Yep. Consumer safety yep. is very important. And if we push weird stuff, they end up in shelves, they end up getting consumed. We, we lost the holistic part of and the medicinal part of the plan that we are trying to push. It's, it, it's all gone. When you have companies yeah. treating their flower with ozone just so they can pass compliance. Uh, yep. And did you, do you know what ozone does and how it reacts to volatile compounds and creates formaldehyde in people's lungs? Yes. Like, yeah. Uh, and epoxides and, you know, other things. 
And the hype, the problem is companies, they get behind those people and they hype them up. Oh, look at this technology. No, you're killing people because there is no body behind that that is regulating things. You know, it it will be even better if we allow technology and research and development lead the legislation, not the other way around. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, it's, it's really been frustrating to watch the hands-off approach that um, regulators in the United States particularly have had, because I agree, it really just creates this avenue for people to do whatever they want and, and get away with it for prolonged periods of time without any accountability. And fraud is already a, a significant issue in the natural products industry broadly. Um, this was one reason why um, genetic testing was a really big deal in the natural product scene through the 90s and early 2000s when it was really first kind of um, coming online, the ability to be able to actually check to know whether your herbs are actually the species that they're supposed to be. Um, you know, that that's a relatively new thing. Um, and that fraud um, is still happening. And in the cannabis space, there's just so many claims people make about plants and people are so desperate to find genetics that will unlock this like magic door, you know, that's going to give them the perfect yield and the perfect THC concentration or, you know, perfect terpene profile or, or whatever. And they often get, you know, very much misled by all of these claims being made. And a lot of times what annoys me as a scientist and an educator is that a lot of these companies pushing these bad claims will use science and use scientific terminology and lingo and things to try to make it sound like um, they're doing something that they're actually not doing. Um, and so I hope everyone listening um, is mindful of, of, I mean, it's it's quite prevalent, very prevalent. And until folks know that there are tools available and people, companies that they can go to to talk to about these issues and try to find solutions to apply that level of quality control. Um, unfortunately, people are going to end up losing a lot of money, time, and resources along the way um, until they you know, really start taking control of, of that level of quality, um, both in the genetics, not just in the, you know, the chemical profiles. Um, so I think this is all very relevant. And, um, I also, what are your thoughts on, I know just working in genetics, there's no way that you haven't gotten this far without people feeling, um, or expressing to you concern over the type of work you do. Cause it's like, like you mentioned, like gene editing versus GMOs, people kind of have these buzzwords from pop culture in their minds and they're like, okay, oh, now you're producing, you know, like Frankenstein plants or something like that. Um, so what's your, what's your kind of response to, to those types of reactions when you talk about, you know, manipulating the genetics of plants and, and studying genes and, and all of that sort of thing? Because I know I've gotten it just in my work in biology, so I know you have to have come across it too. Usually when I have this kind of question, there's two approaches. I go with the approach that, first of all, if you use soybean, cotton, or corn in America, you're already using GMOs. 
first of all, because eighty yeah. percent of soybean, cotton, and corn that is grown and consumed by American today is genetically modified. The second reason RNA interfering in CRISPR and gene editing that are a little different from GMOs, and yeah. I explain why. And also, I say even GMOs they don't have a problem. This is my opinion. I'm a scientist. I know a GMO is not a problem. Yeah. If there is population starving in South Central Asia because they need a rice fortified with vitamin A, we should do it. There is no problem in consuming GMOs. All of this resistance and antibiotic resistance and all of these things were made by certain scientists. And this is my opinion. It could be biased. A lot of scientists didn't make it in, 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 in this sphere, in this scene, either in academia or in private companies. They went to ethic groups. And their job yeah, yeah. is to put the baton in your wheel. So there is no, that's their job. Their job is, be, is to be critical and to be very skeptical and, and, and all of these things. But I am not telling people go eat GMOs. I'm saying GMOs are not as dangerous as what people are telling you. These are tools that humankind been developing and working hard on so we can help certain communities. If I can yeah. make a barley that is drought tolerance and it's a GMO, I would rather those people eat that than starve and go to death because yeah. they don't have anything to eat. So the question is beyond GMO or not, it's let's sit and have a decent conversation about things that are very important. There is Pros and cons. Yeah, yeah. So, do you rather Ab absolutely one million go go dead because they they don't have anything to eat, or worry that they will have an antibiotic resistance from eating that? Those people are dying. They don't have to worry about the antibiotics. They need to eat first. So, yeah, these are the kind of of of, of answers I always give people, and I always tend to be a little aggressive when it comes to this because. We've been demonizing science when we want, and we yes, uplift right. when we want. Yep. This is not how it works. Science yep. is nothing but yep. good for nature unless it's used differently. And what we are trying to do is use technology to solve problems, and that's all that it is. Well, that's a great way to put it. It's it's all about how you use the tools and what you're you're trying to do with them and something you and I talked about when we first met that um that I really liked you know in terms of your approach and how you were thinking about it is we talked about how you know these tools can be applied to support things like regenerative agriculture um and to support a path towards um better systems overall in terms of how we handle um, food and medicine development and those sorts of things. And I, I think sometimes people feel that, you know, something like genomic research and gene editing and things that it's somehow, um, like unnatural and divorced from pursuits that are trying to, um, support the environment, support, you know, um, higher qualities of life and everything. And it's always funny, you know, philosophically, I always point out like humans are not divorced from nature and the, the things that humans do. I think it's kind of funny to think about things that humans do as unnatural because it then posits this idea that somehow we're outside of nature, but 
this is all nature. <laughs> like this is life happening, you know, and we are part of life doing its thing. Um, and so I, I've always had trouble with, with that sort of a argument or that sort of approach that, you know, that something's unnatural. And it's like, well, that, logically that, that doesn't even really follow. Like, what does that mean? Um, and I, I agree. It, it, it all comes down to how a tool is wielded. You can build a house with a hammer or you can break one down. Um, and it's not the hammer's <laughs> you know, fault. It's, it's not, it doesn't make the hammer good or bad. Um, so I, I think that's a really good way to, to, to contextualize that. I just wanted to, to thank you for the opportunity and we don't get to talk this deep about the tech and trying to vulgarize it, make it easy for people to digest. I appreciate you taking the time yes. and, uh, hopefully we get more opportunities to, to develop more certain points and anybody got any questions uh, my name is Osama Badad I'm lead geneticist at Trilogy and Seeds uh, my email address is Osama at trilogyandseeds.com any questions I will be more happy to to follow up or anything perfect yeah and I'll throw all of that in the show notes and yeah we'll probably have to follow up I think there'll be some questions after this and it'll be good to um, see what people think and if we need to further you know explore some of these concepts so thanks so much for being willing to spend the hour with me uh great conversation flew by so fast um and i look forward to sharing this with all of our listeners soon Yo, thank you so much jason i appreciate the time be safe godspeed brother if you're curious about cannabis like me then get connected to the Curious About Cannabis ecosystem and let's learn together. Visit cacpodcast.com slash connect to join our learning community on our Discord server and you can participate in regular giveaways, dive into the latest cannabis research, connect with certified Curious About Cannabis educators, hang out in our break room with other curious minds and more. Best of all, it's totally free. Just visit cacpodcast.com slash connect to learn more or click connect on the Curious About Cannabis app, which is available on Android and coming soon to iOS.